0: Well, good morning. It is wonderful to be with y'all today. Um, today, I will be preaching the first sermon in our series that we are now concluding. So what was intended to be the first is actually going to be the last. Maybe there's a sermon just in that all by itself. But um, when Jim and I dreamed up this sermon series of um, when we worship, looking at the, the things that we say every week, because there are a few things in the rhythm that we have established for what worship looks like in this community. And when you do things all the time, two, two things happen to them. One kind of cool and one a, a little less. Uh, the cool thing is it gets into you. Why do we sing the same? I, I think Matthew said we have about a hundred songs in our greater rotation. And we add and we subtract and we pull on different themes and whatnot. But there are some songs and some hymns that get like down in us. And when we need them, there they are. Uh, It works the same way with familiar scriptures that when we we spend so much time with them that they sort of embed in us. And when we need them, they can come out. And so in worship, there's a few things that we've chosen for our rhythm of our time together that is meant to, to embed deep within us. But at the same time, saying them all the time over and over also sort of has them obscure, they, they sort of disappear, fade into the background, and it just becomes something we do. Um, we read a scripture and then we say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. We uh, use the same benediction every Sunday. We say the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. So the, these rhythms get into us, but it's important every so often to slow down and wonder why we do these things, why we chose these things, and, and what are they, what are they supposed to do, since they now live inside of us. So there's the big idea. I've got this whole first section of my notes of this sermon that I wrote over a month ago. Uh, before we ended up in the, the odyssey of trying to bring Wilder into the world. And so the first couple of lines, I can just scratch them out. Um, something neat about what it means to be town view is revealed in these four things that we say every week when we worship. And also reveals something just quickly I want to share with you about our denomination and what it sort of means to be Baptist. Uh, One of the things that is central to being a Baptist in a Baptist church is that there's no one telling us how to worship. The things that we read and hear, the things that we pray and hear, the sermons, there's no one telling us what to do. No one told us what songs to sing today, what scripture to use, or what I should be preaching on. We do participate in, as Townview, we have chosen to participate in a rhythm with the rest of the church uh, globally that sort of gets us through the Bible once every three years. But the, the little stuff, the day-to-day, that's, that's us. That's us as a community. Part of what it means to be Baptist is everyone has one vote. I have one vote. You have one vote. There's no hierarchy in our structure, and that's true denominationally as well. We don't have a bishop. We don't have a pope. There's no one saying, you must say the Lord's Prayer, or it is not a service, and there's no one saying you must take communion once a month, or once a quarter, or every Sunday. We make these decisions based on how we feel the Spirit is leading us, and so we've chosen these four things that we pull on every week. So today, we're going to look at the, the first thing that we always all say together in worship. Uh, Heather read our call to worship this morning, out Psalm 118, which is, we're going to spend a lot of time with that psalm today. And we get to the end of our call to worship, and whoever's standing here says, this is the word of... No, they don't. They say, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That comes out of Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is part of a collection of liberation psalms used during festivals commemorating the Exodus, Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Booths. Psalm 118 is read... It's a prayer poem about rescue, about liberation, about being set free. It's a prayer poem about how God's love and goodness always finds its way to God's people. It's a prayer poem about moving, about going from death to life, from dark to light, from bondage to freedom. And it's about how God shows up in human history for the sake of those God loves. It's a psalm to recite when the people gather to remember what God has done for them and how God has saved them. So it makes sense, right, for us to start our services with this sort of triumphant phrase that commemorates God's rescuing, God's liberative actions in human history. Start our worship by making this declaration of a new day. It's good to utilize this in our church gatherings. And um, even as a personal mantra, actually, I know two people that do this who have made, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Their their mantra, uh, they wake up every morning and they've decided as sort of a spiritual discipline, the first thing that's going to come out of my mouth is this is the day that the Lord has made. No matter what is going on, no matter what's up in their life, no matter what's wrong that day or how they feel They're going to start their day with, This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. It's a a great discipline. It it really is. And it's a beautiful verse. It's the 24th verse in that psalm, as it reads in the King James, which is how most of us tend to memorize scripture. Those hang in our heads and in our memory and in sort of the nostalgic parts of our heart. But it's not actually a very good translation of the Hebrew which means I'm going to have a lot of fun. Uh, give me the one with the Hebrew on it. There we go. There's, uh, there's some problems here because there's some ambiguity. It's one of my favorite things to find in the Bible. There's some ambiguity about the verb and the last pronoun. What has the Lord done? And what are we glad about? Those are the things in question. It reads, this is the day that the Lord has a sha. I will rejoice and be glad in bow. Some more modern translations, like the NIV, which we frequently use here, have done a little better job. And they say things like, this is the day that the Lord has done it. I will rejoice and be glad in it. But I think that the best option, go ahead and give me the next slide. I think the best option for translating this verse is this is the day that the Lord has acted. We will rejoice and be glad in it him this line is a declaration it's a a realization a recognition of god's activity in the world god has acted we have seen it we will rejoice and be glad in the god who acts we'll be glad because our god is alive This little verse in the middle of this big prayer poem is an invitation to a specific kind of reality. Now, in its traditional, King James, popular, mostly memorized version, it's often thought of as sort of a motivational phrase. Slap it on a cat poster or a picture of a sunset. We'll we'll pay uh, Devin to do that. He's a graphic designer. I want a cat hanging off a limb. This is the day that the Lord has made. Um, when we treat it like a, a motivational phrase, that's how we tend to use it, um, it reminds us in that setting that even in the monotony of our daily lives, God has given us a gift in this new day. Uh, you're getting older. Sorry. We're, every day we live is a day we're not getting back. So this is encouragement. We're doing a, It's an encouraging sermon. Yeah. Uh, you're moving only towards death. You're not getting younger. Uh, yeah. And mo- we get up. In, our back hurts. That's, that's how you know you're, you're an adult. You get in the car, you send traffic going into Atlanta, you sit at your desk and stare at a screen until it's time to get back in your car, ride in traffic again to go home and sit and watch Netflix uh, until it's time to go to bed until you die. But, hey, but this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Maybe life is still meaningful, even in the monotony, if today is a gift. If this day even though it's boring and looks like all the others, is a gift from the Lord. But that's not what this line is attempting to call us to. That's, it's a good idea. I mean, God has blessed our comings and goings. God joins us in the rhythm of our life. But something going on in this verse is much deeper. The, uh, this is the day that the Lord has made sort of falls into the trap of many verses that are popular in the American church. And that's the, we read it as motivational or inspirational. Uh, We make it about us. When what is so exciting and captivating and beautiful and powerful and animating about this verse is what it says about God. Why do we rejoice? What are we glad about? That our God is a God who acts. That our God is a God who rescues. That our God is a God who shows up. That our God is a God of justice, who always hears the cry of the oppressed, who always responds to brokenness. That our God is a God who always hears and is always on the move. That our God is a God who acts. This is the day that the Lord has acted. We will rejoice and be glad in God. God has acted. We are saved. We are wanted. We are welcomed. We are loved. We are not abandoned. God has acted. And the only reasonable response... Is to rejoice. So, how does this verse work? How do we use it if not as an inspirational quote that we uh, cross stitch into throw pillows or stick in our Twitter bios? Luckily, Psalm 118 is relatively unique among the Psalms in that we've seen it used. We have an example of people reading it in the Bible, so we know what it's supposed to look like. Psalm 118 is embedded in the story of the dedication of the second temple that you'll find in the book of Ezra. But before we took a look at that, we need to recap basically the whole Old Testament. So, seatbelts. God shows up in human history, has a mission. We learn the mission of God in Genesis chapter 12. God calls Abraham, a man, a single person, and says... Here's what I'm about. Here's the plan. I am going to bless all the families of the earth. That's the mission of God, to bless all the families of the earth. In this mission in human history, God finds partners. This is a God that can easily do any of it by God's self, but chooses to work in human history with people. We're not needed, but we're wanted. We're not required, but we're invited into the plan of God, into the work of reconciliation into the story of what God is doing in the world. And so God starts with Abraham. Through you, I will bless all the families of the earth. This invitation, this hospitality, this thing that God is doing starts with just a man. It expands to his family and then to a whole people group. God chooses a people. And he makes them promises. The, the redemptive history of the Bible sort of picks up at the Exodus. The people of God are liberated from their oppressors. God calls them out into the wilderness, meets them, and makes a covenant with them. And in that covenant, there are promises. God promises that God is using these people to represent God's self to the whole world. That God will be their king. That God will be with them, first in the tabernacle, then in the, in the temple, in like a real tangible way. Like if you asked Anyone in the Old Testament. You go to the Old Testament, you find a God follower. You ask them, where is God? They will not give you a nice, ethereal answer about God is everywhere, or God is in you, or God... No, they'll say an address. God lives in the tabernacle. God lives in the temple. God is with them in such a clear and concrete way that they have, like, this spatial idea of where they can go and always find God. God promises to be with them. And God promises that through this story that God's telling with the people of Israel, that God is going to draw all of humanity to God's self. So how do the people of God do in living up to the call to represent God to the world? They're terrible at it. It's, uh, it's sort of a story of failure. The rescued slaves start enslaving the people around them. Those who cried out and were rescued from their oppressors become oppressors themselves through idolatry and injustice the people of God fail their calling, and the answer is exile. They lose it all. The kingdom, the temple, the king, it's gone. The Davidic king, the line is ended, and they sit in a foreign land. And remember, when think about understanding that God is in a, God is in a place. Try not to get too into the idea that coffee is representing God right now. That's... I've I've been accused before. Um, So if you know that God is in a place, and then you are taken far away from that place, like that means something. When, When your God has a geographical location, exile is a really, really big deal. And so the people find themselves imprisoned again, captive again, oppressed again, strangers in a strange land, again in exile, but the dreams of the prophets find them. God, even though they think God is at a distance, God draws near through the voices of the prophets who start to make new promises to the people of God. Let's get Isaiah 2 up on the screen. That should be our next slide. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. The promise is coming back. Everyone is going to get on board with this. Many people will come and say, come let us go to the mountain, the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his path. The law, the the goodness of God, the redemptive way to live in the world will go out from Zion. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many people. God will be king. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation and they will not stay for war anymore. Give me Isaiah 40, more promises. Yeah, jump to the next slide with words for me. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sins have been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. There are promises Being made to the people. We're going to get a second chance. The exile will not be the end of the story. And now, here in exile, the people are called by the prophets to get ready. They're going to go back, and soon we're going to go home. We're going to have another shot. We're going to rebuild the temple. We're going to find our messianic king. The nations will come to Jerusalem. God will be king of the world, and there will be peace. We will return. We will rebuild. God will rule. The Messiah will arrive, and the nations will come to the Lord's temple, and God will be their king. Ezra. Give me Ezra chapter 1. The first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken to Jeremiah, that's what we read a minute ago, that the service is over, that the labor is done. The exile is going to be concluded. To fulfill what Jeremiah spoke, the Lord moved in the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. That's how you know it's serious. This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build for him a temple in Jerusalem, in Judah. Any of his people among you may go to Jerusalem in Judah And build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel. The God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. Ezra, uh, maybe you've read Ezra, maybe not. It's a good little book in the middle of the Bible. Um, Frequently seen in church for like building campaigns or stewardship campaigns. If you're going to preach a sermon asking for money, you might go to Ezra. Because it's a story about collecting materials and trying to build Something. But I, I think we miss a lot of the nuance here. So the people are going back. The exile is over. They're going to rebuild the temple and change the world. Enter Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel uh, is a good name, it means planted in Babel. This man of the priestly line, born during the exile, he's got this passion. He wants to reestablish the rhythms of religious life in Jerusalem. Even in the face of danger. So he sets about collecting supplies, building support, and they start to construct the temple. Give me Ezra 3. That should be the next one in there. Here we go. So they start to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, a house for God. When the builders laid the foundations of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with their trumpets and the Levites with cymbals took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, the king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. Psalm 118, he is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. They recite this psalm. They sing it with cymbals and trumpets as loud worship. That psalm that we read at the beginning of the service that God has rescued, that God is redeemed, that even though we are surrounded by enemies, that God is going to do it, and that this is the day that the Lord has acted. I will rejoice and be glad in God. And it says, as they worship, all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundations of the house of the Lord had been laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and families that had seen the former temple those old enough to have lived through the exile, those who saw what Jerusalem used to be like before they blew it. Many of the older priests, the older Levites, and the family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundations of the new temple, while others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish between the sound of the shouts of joy and the sounds of weeping, because the people both made such noise, and it could be heard from far away. Some people are, are so excited about this new thing that they're, they're, they have this explosive, you can hear it for miles, kind of worship, and some are so dismayed that it's different from what they expected, that it's different from what God had done in the past, that it's not like how they remember that they weep so loudly that you can hear them at a great distance and you can't tell the difference between the praise and the worship. And so the word spreads that the Jews are going to rebuild the temple to God A place where God literally is a house for the Lord. And the nations, their neighbors, come to join. They come to see. Remember the promise that the nations and enemies would come to Jerusalem and meet and worship God? These exiles have come home by the grace of God as prophesied. They are living in a time where prophecy is coming true all around them. And here's another one right in front of them, the people streaming to Jerusalem. Let's see how they do. Ezra chapter 4, give me that next one. Wendy, I'm covering up a word that obscures some of the meaning here. I'll let you know what it is in a minute. When the neighboring peoples heard that the exiles were rebuilding the temple of the Lord to the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel. The guy whose like whole mission is trying to get people to worship God. They come to Zerubbabel to the heads of the families and say, "Let us help you build because like you we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since way back when. You don't don't worry about the since before the exile we've been keeping up with this God. Let us join you." How do we respond? Give me the next slide. Let's see what we got. Do we have the next one? But Zerubbabel Joshua and the rest of the heads of the family answered that the nations that have streamed to Jerusalem to participate in the rebuilding of the temple, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, the king, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. In a time when prophecy is being realized all around them, they miss out on a big one. They, they say no to a revival that's re- arriving at their doorsteps. Maybe there are some who theorize that maybe this is actually, this could have been the moment, that that could have been like plan A for the arrival of the messianic king and the reconciliation of all things, that that could have been the start of it. But that they got in the way. You have no part in this story. This is about us. Hmm. And and that word I covered up uh, with that asterisk there. When the people go back and tell this story, they don't write our neighbors came. They write our enemies came. If you're following along in your Bible, like (laughs) when they go back to tell the story, the people that in in excitement and joy came to be a part of what God is doing. They become their enemies because of their response. They turn these people away from God and lose them. Not only as brothers and sisters in worship, but now their neighbors are their enemies. And they find themselves embroiled in conflict again. And the project stalls. The temple that they're called to build, the temple that they start on, the temple that their neighbors wanted to support them in, sits as... Foundations for 17 years. Before more prophets come along, prophets Zechariah and Haggai are sent to encourage Zerubbabel to finish the work. And in Zechariah chapter uh, 8, verse 9, we see that the work is finished. In Haggai chapter 1, we see the work finished. So it gets done, but the miracle has been rejected, revival has been turned away. A possible future is traded for echoes of former glory. The work is finished, but the revival never comes. And this temple never really lives up to their expectations for hundreds of years before it again is eventually destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. They gather This is the day that the Lord has acted. We will rejoice and be glad in God. And in the next breath, you have no part in this story. These words that we say every week, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We repeat them so that they get in, so that they soak into our souls and that they change us. This is a declaration that we must say every week so that we do not fall into the trap of Zerubbabel. That we don't become the kinds of people who turn others away, who who get so caught up in what they think they're supposed to be doing, that they miss out on what God is actually doing in the world. We have to let these words change us. That we not be so obsessed with our plans that we miss out on what God is doing. That we not be so obsessed with getting back to normal that we miss what is possible that we not be so obsessed with what COVID has taken that we miss what god is trying to give us that we not be so obsessed with the glory of the past that we miss out on god's good future not so obsessed with what we're doing that we miss what god is doing in the world around us this day This is the day that the Lord has acted. God is alive. God is on the move. God is up to something. The only response in the invitation to participate in what God is doing is to rejoice. This is the day that the Lord has acted. We will rejoice and be glad in God. Amen. God, we thank you today. That you are a God who acts. That you are a God who is present and alive in the world. That you are a God who doesn't need us, but who wants us. Who calls us to a new way of being alive that's bigger and better and more more real, more human than anything we could ever imagine. That you invite us into the way that we're supposed to be. God, we ask for courage. The world is a difficult place to be these days, and unfortunately, we have not many options. So here we are. Church can be a hard place to be. Help us have the courage and imagination to see what you are doing in us in our church in our world that we would be the kinds of people who would say yes to 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 you to what you're offering to what you're doing that we would be the kinds of people that say yes to our community that we would show up as you you have example to us showing up you were perfectly capable of sitting safe and comfortable enthroned forever, perfectly secure in the heavens, but that the Jesus is the proof that you love us as we are, but you love us too much to let us stay that way, and th- that risk and love are connected, that justice cannot be done from a distance, that you can't restore the world at arm's length, but that You've shown us through the life of Jesus what kind of church you want, what kind of people we are to be, and that, that is a people who are following you out into the world. That we seek reconciliation at proximity, that we get close, that we don't cloister in our, our churches and our sanctuaries, but that we are the church regardless of where we are. Give us the courage Not to fall into the trap that Zerubbabel stumbled into. To think that this is a story about us. This is a story about you. Help us to keep you first. Help us to seek you first. And as we build, help us to rejoice. Love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. In just a moment, the band is going to, to close us in worship. This is a chance for, for us to take time to respond. Because we, we believe that this is a God who is active and alive. Today is the day that the Lord has acted. We will rejoice and be glad in it. There's, God has acted and we respond. We believe that here at Townview. Maybe you've encountered God today in something. In music, in prayer, in sermon, in scripture. Maybe in the silence in between. Take a moment and acknowledge that. Maybe God is calling you to make some sort of decision today about something in your life, about something in your life with him, about uh, maybe you need to take that first step and, and say yes to Jesus. Maybe you need to take the 100th step and say yes to the next thing that Jesus is calling you to. I don't know, but I believe that God is calling all of us. God speaks, we respond. This is the day that the Lord has acted. We will rejoice and be glad in this God.